Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, David. Good morning, Arcadia. How y'all doing? All right, if you're new here today, my name is Frank, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, you're going to hear from me a lot this morning. Um, Those of you that know that we have a pretty big, important announcement this morning that we want to take you through, um, you're going to have to listen to me preach first. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, But I do want to mention, again, look in your bulletins. There are two classes that start this Wednesday night. Uh, One is uh, being led by Cody and Josh. Josh was just up here. Cody was right here as well. Uh, That's uh, how to live the Bible for all it's worth. And then another one. Uh, is a women's uh, study that um, Caroline Van Slyke is going to be leading, actually the wife of the guy that just read the scriptures for us. And then also you got a little handout today uh, on the women's event on the 25th down at Hope House Farms with Kit Danley. I've known Kit for about 20 years. It's going to be an awesome morning. I would highly uh, encourage you to be there. Uh, What we're looking at today is we're, we're returning to the Gospel of Mark. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for the last well, since the um, beginning of February, and we're going to continue to do that for the, pretty much the rest of the year. Uh, and today we have what's known as the culmination of the conflict texts. So starting in Mark chapter 2, there are all of these little pericopes, which are sm- small, short narratives of Jesus having sort of these uh, verbal tussles with the professional religious Jews of the day. And there's a lot of conflict in these, and today th- we see the culmination of that. And you get that because the last verse that David read this morning, verse 6 of chapter 3, you see that the Herodians and the Pharisees decided to get together to plot to kill uh, Jesus. So uh, let me take you through what we've looked at so far. According to uh, the professional religious people, uh, Jesus uh, is one who curses God and his law. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 7, when he told the man who was uh, on the on the mat, who was paralyzed, that his sins were forgiven. That freaked them out. That was a claim to divinity. 
And that made them mad. And then uh, uh, in verse 16, we see that they're unhappy because uh, in my vernacular, I would say that they're accusing Jesus of being a teammate with sinners. He goes to this party where, where the sinners and the tax collectors are, and he's mingling with these awful, horrible, detestable people. Uh, and so they don't like that either. And then uh, right after that, we get into that whole thing about fasting and why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus says nobody fasts when the bridegroom is, is here. Again, making reference to the fact that he's God. And so he becomes a disrespecter of their sacred religious traditions and customs. And now, in these passages here, these two paragraphs we look at, he becomes a Sabbath breaker, which is a particularly heinous crime uh, to the Pharisees. Uh, Tim Keller writes this in his book about Mark. At the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus stuns the religious leaders by claiming to be able to forgive sins. But now, by offending the Pharisaic Sabbath rules, that's an important distinction there. there. He's offending the Sabbath rules that the Pharisees have made. By offending the Pharisaic Sabbath rules, he makes an even more outrageous claim, so outrageous that the religious leaders don't have, even have a word for it. Jesus declares not that he's come to reform religion, but that he will end religion and replace it with himself. Three weeks ago, as we were going through some of these conflict texts, we said it like this. Jesus' new perspective on religion is that it's about a person. It's about him, not a philosophy or a cause. And and then we said it this way. Jesus turns the world upside down. And, And I would say it this way, even. I go further and say, Jesus turns our world upside down, but he turns the world right side up by coming and and ushering in the kingdom of God. We normally have one big idea on a Sunday. Today we have two because both of these paragraphs are so meaty that we're going to have two, but the, the uh, the paragraphs and the two big ideas are certainly related. So here they are. The first big idea is in verses 23 through 28 of of chapter 2. Jesus is Lord over mankind, therefore he is Lord over all of our stuff. And when I use that academic word stuff, what I'm talking about is not just our wealth, but he's Lord also over our institutions, over our customs, over our traditions, over our time, over our worldview. He's Lord over every last aspect of who we are. Are, not just our wealth. And then the second big idea, which will come in the first six chapters, I'm sorry, the first six verses of chapter three, is that Jesus restores rather than observes. So let me just, again, take us back to chapter two, the end of chapter two. Let me reread that for us. We are in Mark. Sorry, I wasn't prepared. I was over there in John. All right, here we go. So let me reread that and then we'll unpack um, this paragraph. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, but also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Even over the Sabbath. Let me uh, make some comments about the text. And we're going to dive in very deep about this whole concept of what the Sabbath is. Uh, And it's interesting, in this paragraph, I want you to see that there's a difference between the way Jesus um, handles the conversation with the Pharisees. In this paragraph here, he responds to them 
But in that next paragraph, in chapter 3, we're going to see that he's actually initiating. He's, he's getting more aggressive. He's initiating the conflict. Now, as I've already mentioned, the Sabbath is a big, it's a big, big deal. In Genesis, God created. You read the creation narrative. And then he rested on the seventh day. And then you find in the Ten Commandments that keeping the Sabbath holy is the fourth commandment. Now, remember, he says keep the Sabbath holy. That's a very important wording for us uh, later on. But, but you see there's a connection now between the Ten Commandments and the creation narrative. And so ancient Jewish religious uh, writings and the ancient Jewish, Jewish religious leaders claim that the Sabbath, more than anything in their customs and in their history, was a sign of partnering with God in bringing flourishing to the creation. It's the only uh, commandment that we really see this tight connection with creation. So, Sabbath is almost as important as circumcision, which is the chief identifying factor of the, of the Jewish people and their covenant relationship with the Lord. So, they value the Sabbath very highly. So, they're very offended by what uh, Jesus is doing here. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that if you think about most of the world's religions, you know that most world religions revere a place. So Mecca is revered, uh, the Ganges River is, is revered, the, the island of Japan is revered, and even for the Jews, you know that the temple is revered. But in this Sabbath reference, what they're also revering, at least partially, is time. It's time. It's one of the things that the Sabbath is about is time. And so we would say this is kind of advanced if you think about it. So this is a significant issue here. I want you to think now just for a minute today. What's the one limited commodity that all of us have? We all have it in the same ratio and not a single one of us can get any more though we would like to have more. And that's time. Yet we can't go out. How many of us have thought if I had five more hours a week than everybody else, how much of an advantage that would be? Or 10. It would be, I'd use them to sleep. But it would be awesome. Right? Okay? But we can't do that. You, you need more money? You can always go out and make more money. There's that opportunity anyway because there's no real limit there on money. You, 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 you want to you learn more? There's more information out there. You can spend all, the, all day long getting more information. You, you want more friends or, or, or relationships? You can, you can always do that. But every one of us gets exactly 168 hours per week. So this is interesting as well, how we spend our time. Now, it's important also to understand what the Pharisaic beliefs and teachings were about the Sabbath. There's, there's what God intended, but then there's the additional Pharisaic teachings about the Sabbath. And that's the big thing that's really at issue here. What God intended for the Sabbath and what humans do to God's um, teaching and God's law, usually out of pride or a need to control or because we want power, what we do to God's teaching and law, that's what Jesus is pushing back against here. The religious leaders had come up with all sorts of other rules that people were supposed to follow in, relation, follow in relationship to the Sabbath. And these rules were not necessarily bad, but they were not what God had intended. And here's an even more important point they were elevating these rules above God and above people and above what God had intended. And so they've become actually idols in a sense. And here are some of their teaching. For instance, Pharisees said you could save a life on the Sabbath, but you could never cure or heal a non-life-threatening situation. The Pharisees said that you could, you could stop further damage or deterioration to your home 
or to your business or to your livestock. If damage was coming at those things, you could stop further damage, but you could do nothing to reverse that damage on the Sabbath. You couldn't start to repair or to cure or to solve any problems. And the Pharisees had made a law that that if you prepared properly like you were supposed to, therefore the day of preparation, if you prepared properly like you were supposed to, you would never go hungry on the Sabbath because you'd have all your food prepared. And therefore, any work relating to the preparation of food was also a problem. So, picking grain on the Sabbath was verboten. Which is interesting because if you read Deuteronomy chapter 23 closely, you could say, "Mm, I think they maybe are missing the boat there, but that's for another time. And then this one. Pharisees even take it, took it further. Some Pharisees actually believed and taught that human beings were created for the Sabbath. That one of our jobs is to serve the Sabbath. And I would argue that this is probably the influence of those other ancient creation texts creeping into their teaching, those other creation texts where unlike the biblical creation text where we are created as stewards and beneficiaries of God's resources. Those other texts primarily teach that human beings were created to be slaves of God and that that was all we were really good for. But God's understanding for his commandments are different. And this is is something that we have to dive into. I'm going to just keep going deeper and grinding harder on this stuff. God's understanding of his commandments were completely different than what the Pharisees at that time were bringing to the table. He actually made his commandments for human beings to to help us flourish, to give us actually freedom, to help us to understand what is important and what's not important. In, In other words, here's how one author says it, and I think this is really helpful. The commandments were given, yes, to show us how we fall short of the glory of God. That is certainly true. But the commandments were also given so that we could see how to bring glory. And that biblical word glory literally means weight, worthiness, and import. So weight, worthiness, and import. So in other words, how to bring weight and importance and how to bring glory to the correct things in life. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this. He said, you know, one of the problems with human beings is that we tend to pursue and emphasize the secondary things in life, not that they're bad things, but the secondary things in life at the expense of God's primary and ultimate things. And without the guidance of God, we go all haywire and get off track with these secondary things. And we begin to elevate those secondary things, which are not necessarily bad in themselves, but when we begin to elevate them to primary and ultimate things and ask those secondary things to do things for us in our lives, like fulfill us and give us a sense of satisfaction and contentment and give us a a sense of meaning and purpose, when we ask those secondary things to do that and they're not able to because they can't, we get very frustrated with life. And then, of course, we blame God and we blame others and we blame our circumstances and it's really our problem for placing such an emphasis on it. Let me, let me dig a little bit deeper here, okay? Uh, right now, our culture is obsessed with sex and sexual identity. Now, those things are, are important and God created sex, but they're not ulti- it's not an ultimate thing, but we are trying to find our identity and our fulfillment in this secondary thing, we've made it an ultimate thing. And I've got to tell you something, it's not working. 
People are frustrated and disappointed with how it's not delivering for us. And that's just one simple little example. So the law, God's law, and therefore the value of the Sabbath was actually a gift to us, not something to encumber us or be a burden to us or to enslave us. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. Understand, he said, I didn't come to to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. If the law was a bad thing, why would Jesus fulfill it if it was a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it's being twisted for the wrong things now. One author, Edwards, says it this way. Both the legalist rule monger and the one who is free in Christ will desire to keep the Sabbath, but one will do it out of grinding, grudging duty, thus making it a burden, and the other out of delight because they know the Sabbath is a gift. So now the disciples and Jesus are walking through this grain field and the assumption by the scholars is that they're picking corn at this time and the Pharisees have a problem with it. And Jesus answers, not with an excuse, but with something to set a precedent about his teaching for the Sabbath. Jesus' reference here, and by the way, there's great irony in both of these paragraphs. You just you got to keep picking up on the irony. He says to the very people, who found their identity in the fact that all they did was read the Hebrew Scriptures and know the Hebrew Scriptures. They know these Scriptures backwards and forwards. And he says to them, have you never read? A little irony. And he's referencing this well-known story of David in 1 Samuel 21 where he and his band of guys, 400 guys were on the run and they were, they were, they were desperate and they were starved and then they ate this sacred altar bread that really they weren't supposed to eat. And Jesus mentions Abiathar, which troubles some Bible uh, people that really know the Bible well because Ahimelech was really the the priest at Nob that that David got the bread from. But common for that day, a teacher would reference the one who was the high priest under David's reign ultimately, and that was Abiathar. And Jesus' point in bringing this up is that God has created us to be his beneficiaries. That, 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 That we don't serve the Sabbath that the Sabbath was given to us as a gift. And so when we begin to serve God's law and rules above God himself, we're actually making a mockery of God and we're making a mockery of his law and his teachings. We're getting it all twisted up. And we even become slaves of this kind of thinking and the, and the law and the burden of it rather than experiencing God's blessing. And the, the, the law was really intended to bring life to his people. Jesus is saying you have become a slave to that which was meant to set you free. How often do we do that in our lives? Given this wonderful gift, we're given something that is intended to bring us freedom and joy, and, and, and it becomes a burden. The Sabbath was given as a gift by God to us. A gift. Again, we're God's beneficiaries and we take these gifts and we encumber ourselves with them rather than enjoying them and, and, and feeling rejuvenation in them and being set free in them. And Jesus speaks into this because He is Lord. He's God. He's been making these claims to divinity all the way through. This is ultimately what is angering the religious people. And as Lord, He is not just Lord over us, but he's Lord over everything that's associated with us. So he's Lord over our traditions and our customs and our institutions. He's Lord over our wealth as well, but he's also the Lord over our time. Every resource that we have 
that he's blessed us with, we're stewards of it, and he's still... We're lords, yes, stewards, but under his ultimate lordship and stewardship. Jesus claims us, and that means he claims everything about us as well. And, and again, he's been making these claims to divinity, and I want you to see this too. This is really important, sometimes a little bit subtle and nuanced, but it's important. Every prophet, sage, wise man, every religious leader, and every priest prior to Jesus, when he's teaching about God and what God would say, he would say, thus saith the Lord, right? When I, when I get up and I teach, I, I, I say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. But Jesus then comes along and says what? Truly, truly, I say to you, this is way different now. That's a claim to divinity right there. And again, I, I want to I talk about this again because it's, it's right in front of us in our world today constantly. We often run into people who say, in fact, I ran it again. I had a meeting with somebody Friday, said the exact same thing to me. It's just constant, constant reframe. They appreciate Jesus' teaching, but they could never believe that he's God. I run into this a lot. And I'll say it again. People who say that, in my opinion, they just haven't taken a minute to slow down and think about how illogical that statement is because if they like Jesus' teaching, they should understand that all of his teaching is predicated on the fact that he's God. He can only teach what he teaches because he's God. If he's not God, he doesn't teach the way he teaches and he doesn't teach the things that he teaches and he doesn't teach with the authority that he teaches. His teaching is based solely on his identity as God. So if you reject him as God, you cannot possibly, on the other hand, accept, embrace, and appreciate the value of his teaching. It's a contradiction. And I believe, and, and I've read things about this, and I believe that people say this because what they want, they want all the benefits of Jesus' teaching, especially when it agrees with them, when it helps them, when it works for them, but they don't want to have to do it if they don't like it or they don't agree with it, and ultimately they don't want to give their entire lives to Him. They don't want to give all their stuff to Him. They don't want to give their customs, their institutions, their traditions, their time, their wealth. They don't want to give all of that to Him. Here it is. They want a world where they can have Jesus and reject Him too. That's what they're looking for. Uh, saying that Jesus is a good teacher but not God is what we might call an attempted a third way. You read what Jesus says in the New Testament. He says you've got a decision between two things. You're either all in or all out. That's it. Read the New Testament. That's what it says. Okay. There's no third way. Those who claim that Jesus is a good teacher and a cool guy, but not God. They're, they're trying for a third-way compromise. They're trying for a have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too existence with Jesus, but that does not exist. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And the only way he's Lord of the Sabbath, he created the Sabbath, he wrote about the Sabbath. The only way he does that is if he's Lord of everything, if he's God. Jesus is misunderstood. He's misunderstood in their world. He's misunderstood in our world. And so is Sabbath is misunderstood in their world, in our world as well. And those misunderstandings are connected. And here we go. We're going to go even deeper now. We're going to go even deeper. Part of the misunderstanding can come from a not-so-close reading of what Jesus says here. Jesus is Lord. 
Yes, we acknowledge that. But he doesn't say, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I know, that seems like a really minor nuance. It's not so minor. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I am the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. All that rest that you're looking for, how many of you are kind of tired, fatigued, stressed out, anxious? Okay, I would assume every stinking hand in here and every pleasant smelling one in this room would go up. We're tired. We're beat. We're weary. You know that rest that we're looking for? It's not going to come in just a, How many of you have had, get the day off and like, I'm more tired than I was before? Okay. It's not in a day off. It's in Jesus. Pharisees were missing that point as well. Our rest is not in a day off. It's not in a vacation. It's not in retirement. Our rest or, or even further, our shalom, our peace is in Jesus. And I, and I know some of you are like, okay, wait a minute. Said During creation account, said God rested on the seventh day. You're right. But again, what does that really mean? He's God. Was God really exhausted? If God gets exhausted, I would suggest we have something to worry about. Because he's not going to pay attention very well when he's exhausted, okay? He's God. He doesn't get exhausted. So really, what is this all about? Now, you and I do get tired. We get tired. And so we need time for rejuvenation. We need time for recreation, recreation. I am all for that. I heartily endorse endorse it. But from God's perspective, the Sabbath is also a contentment issue. It's about contentment. It's the ability to take some time to look at what we have done and be satisfied with it. To slow down and say, that's it. I'm good. God says, I want you to stop working and realize you can always want more stuff. You can always desire to be somewhere else. You can always long to have different relationships in your life. And you can always think that it would be cool if you were a different person. You can always think about that, but God says, no, instead, Sabbath. Be content Rest in Jesus. Find your shalom in Jesus. Look on satisfaction with what God has blessed you with. Who you are, where you are, what you have, and who you're with. He's blessed you with that. Look upon that with with great satisfaction and contentment. He's blessed us. Jesus is Lord. And He's Lord of our rest. He's Lord of our satisfaction. He's Lord of our freedom. Now, second paragraph mark 3 1 through 6 stakes get higher here again jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched jesus to see whether he would heal him heal him on the sabbath so that they might accuse him and he said to the man with a withered hand come here and he said to them meaning the pharisees is it lawful for the sabbath uh, is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm that could also be translated as to do evil to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him, how to kill him. So now here you see, rather than responding, Jesus initiates in this text. And this is another little narrative about violating the Sabbath, but this one is much more hot-blooded than even the last one. 
And the stakes are higher here because they're in the synagogue. And that word accuse, they were looking to accuse him, literally means to mount an airtight legal case that would result in his execution. And again, there's more irony here. Just, this is just dripping with irony. Healing would not have violated the biblical Sabbath, but it would have violated the Pharisees' rules of Sabbath observance. But Jesus is going to restore rather than observe the Pharisees' rules. And they claim that, they claim that you could only heal if it would save a life. The, the man with the withered hand, he, he wasn't in danger of losing his life. He was chronic, not critical. He just wanted restoration to something that he once had. That's what he was looking for. And it's funny because restoration is what Jesus is going to bring to all of us when he comes again. He's going to restore the created order. He's going to restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. That's the idea of shalom, by the way. Things are the way they're supposed to be. We know they're not the way they're supposed to be, but they're going to be made that way again when Jesus comes again. Restoration of paradise, the created order, and unity among the nations, tribes, people, and and unity with creation. That's what this man wants for his hand. And Jesus really takes offense to the heart of the Pharisees. And as a result, this is one of the few times where Mark describes Jesus as angry. Yes, I know some of us are little cupcakes and muffins. Jesus with his feathered hair, he's angry. We, we don't always like that. We, we like, many of us like a straw Jesus, a, a Jesus that we can control and shred anytime we need to. But Jesus gets angry at this kind of stuff. And he's teaching that a hard heart is worse than not following the rules. Those, there's three words that, but that, that Paul uses in here, excuse me, that Mark uses in here that aren't used anywhere else in the gospel. The, the words anger, grieved, and hardness of heart. They're penetrating, forceful words. And, and what Mark, I believe, wants us to see is that Jesus is taking a position, and he's taking this position publicly. So he shows us that our faith is not a private venture, but a public risk. And that should be the same for all of us. And then the challenge goes even deeper than that. A lot of us who are regular churchgoers, we hear this and we think in our, in our minds, in our hearts, we think, yes, those people not in church, those people who aren't in church, they're not honoring God, and God judges their hard hearts. That's pretty easy to do, judge those people who aren't here with us today, right? What about us? Oh, shoot, I knew he was going to ask that. Some of the hardest hearts that exist you can often find inside of a church. The point of God's Word, yes, it's to convict non-believers. You betcha. I'm all for that. We need to understand that God's Word also convicts those of us who should know better. It's great that you and I often think of these people outside of the church who need to hear the Gospel, and, and I am all for that. We are outward focused but we need to admit that we need to hear it too and be challenged and be transformed. The gospel is as much for us who think we know better, who already have salvation, as it is for those that don't have salvation. So we'd ask, how's your heart? How's your heart today? Jesus' compassion gets him into the ultimate trouble. The Pharisees and the Herodians plot to kill him. Again, there's great irony here. The Herodians were actually Jews who had adopted the Greco-Roman way of life and morality. They had abandoned their Jewishness. The Pharisees saw them as sellouts and political prostitutes. They were religiously corrupt and dirty. Pharisees and the Herodians got along the way Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow get along, okay? But Jesus. 
It's fascinating how someone as wonderful as Jesus can make so many people then and now so angry that they're willing to set aside not little differences, but massive differences. Religious differences, political differences, personal differences, worldview differences. We'll set aside any difference we can as long as we can gang up against Jesus. Strange bedfellows always result when people are riled at Jesus. Now the key to this paragraph, and this is what we'll wrap with, is that is that question he asks in the middle. He says, is it lawful to do, uh, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And on the surface, this sounds like the same question. He's just rewording it. It's not. It's two completely separate questions. And the questions aren't even similar, even though they sound similar. They're different questions, and we need to see this. That first part, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to do evil? Jesus here is pressing against the Pharisees and their legalistic interpretation of God's law in order to say, really? Really, guys? The good God who who created paradise and humans as his beneficiaries of his creation, he would reject this man for the sake of your Sabbath rules? Really? Is that what would happen? It's a cutting and insulting question. And the Pharisees know it. Jesus is raising the stakes here. He's saying you would rather observe a rule than restore a man. But then the second part of the question penetrates even further. He says, save a life or kill. Jesus now switches to talking about himself. He's not talking about the man anymore. He's not talking about the Pharisees' rules uh, in relation to the man. Now he's talking about himself. He's saying, listen guys, I know your heart. You want me dead, and you're willing to kill me in order to get me dead. And you're willing to violate, here you go, you're willing to violate the sixth and the ninth commandments. Do not murder, do not bear false witness against another. You're willing to violate the six and the nine in order to protect your version of the four. You're willing to trade the four for the six and the nine. He says, that's evil. You know that's evil. You could save a life here today, mine, but you choose, irony of irony, on the Sabbath, the very thing that you're trying to fight for, you choose to murder me. You choose evil. I'm the one choosing good. They're parallel questions, yes. They both deal with the hard hearts of the Pharisees, but they are completely different topics. One is about doing good on the Sabbath, and one is about murdering God. And clearly, Jesus is way more about restoration than observation in this particular case. So Jesus is angry because the religious leaders have taken something that's meant for restoration, for rejuvenation, for recreation, for renewal, and they distort it with rules. This is, this is God helping us with our desire to be content and for shalom, and they're ruining it with the rules. And, and the Pharisees' hearts are even more shriveled than this man's hand. So how's your heart? How's my heart? This again comes down to something that we proclaim every single Sunday here at Redemption Arcadia. Are you here to receive the gospel or are you here to live under a religion? The religious person says, if I dutifully observe and obey, then I am worthy of being accepted by God. The gospel says, if I'm fully accepted, redeemed, and restored in Jesus... Now I have the love and the power to obey. I have my rest in Jesus, and so now enjoy. I live for Him. That's the gospel. 
I'm going to pray, and as I do, I'm going to ask uh, Tyler Johnson, the lead pastor over all of Redemption, to come up. And uh, Cody, if you'd come up and get everybody ready for our, our last song and for communion and everything. God, we thank you that you are Lord of the Sabbath, that you created it for our good and for our benefit and for our flourishing. And so, God, help us to be reminded that as recipients of the gospel, of your grace, that we would be uh, responding in joy and gratitude. That the teaching that you call us to and, and the conformity with your son that you call us to is something that we do joyfully and gladly and that we do it by your power and not ours. So help us with that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, <clears throat> I've been here at Arcadia a little over three years, and um, I was told when I came here that one of the things that I'd be doing is uh, looking for a permanent solution to our location. Uh, we have been leasing from Memorial Presbyterian for five years, and we still have some, uh, more than five years, we still have some time to go, but it's, it's really not necessarily a long-term solution uh, for us, and so we've been looking around. Some of you know this history very well. About a year ago, we actually started looking outside of the Arcadia area. We went up around Shea and, and north of Squaw Peak and, and stuff, and then uh, one day uh, with staff, uh, uh, a staff member, a staff pastor who is now an elder. You can come out here, Cody, if you want. Anyway, he made the suggestion that God gave us a foothold in Arcadia five and a half years ago, and that until he absolutely slams that door shut, we should keep looking in Arcadia. And we kind of shrugged our shoulders and went, hmm, that makes sense, that's faith and that kind of stuff. And so we started looking hard again uh, in, in this area. Um, and then sort of a, a passing comment on a Sunday morning in January uh, by a good friend um, who knew something that we didn't know uh, led to a couple of emails, which led to a couple of meetings uh, which eventually led to um, uh, redemption, writing a letter of intent on a piece of property in the area. And, and uh, we found out that on, on Monday, uh, March 30th, we found out that we were the ones that had been selected by uh, the owners of this property to purchase this property. And we signed a purchase agreement. If you could show, there's a picture actually of that. But there's Neil signing uh, the purchase agreement in the office um, with that guy. So, hey, uh, wow. They don't even know where it is, and they're clapping. It's in New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you don't know Tyler. This is Tyler Johnson. He's the lead pastor over all of Redemption. He's one of the officers of the Redemption Corporation, if you want to call it that. He was sitting right to the right, the left of me there. He also had to sign... Uh, that agreement, so he was there as well, as was Tom Schrader. He was here a couple weeks ago. You guys know him. Uh, the location is uh, 3330 East Camelback Road. It's the old Biltmore Bible Church and Christian Center. It's um, three and a half acres. It's got a lot of parking. <laughs> a lot of parking, amen, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's pretty exciting, um, and, and it's interesting. Um, there's going to be a cost associated with this, obviously, it's in the Arcadia area, close to the Biltmore. Um, the Biltmore Bible Church board, though, was, was, uh, could have sold this property. You can see it there outlined. Uh, the, um, Camelback is to the, to the bottom. Camelback Road is to the bottom of that picture. 
Um, the Billmore Bible Church Board w- could have sold this to a developer, a multi-housing uh, developer, for a lot more money. Uh, but they were determined that they were going to keep the legacy of the gospel going on this property. That, that we weren't the only church that was, that was interested, obviously, in this property. There were several others, as well as several developers who were quite interested in the property. It was, it was quite an interesting day when we went in there and they said, well, you guys are the ones. Uh, we've decided to accept your... Uh, your letter of intent. Um, uh, initially, up front, the cost of the property and the buildings that exist on the property, uh, probably around 30% of market value. However, there's going to be a considerable amount of work that needs to be done to the property to get it up to speed. It's, it's almost, in some respects, um, unusable uh, at the current time, and so we're going to have to work through some things. Um, we have put it in escrow. Escrow opened this last Monday, the Monday after Easter, so now it's in escrow. So here's the process. Uh, we have 90 days for a feasibility study, and we've started that feasibility study. Uh, one of our, the architects that we, we use, and some of you know him, Jack DeBartolo, and, and some uh, general contractors have looked at the property, and obviously they've already found a few more things wrong with the property than we initially understood would, there, would be there, which means more money in the restoration of the property. Uh, so we're working through that. We're, we're going to see if it's still feasible. We have 90 days to do that. If we are able to work through that period of time and get it out of escrow, that will be sometime in early July. At that point, we will start construction, and the construction will take anywhere from six to eight months, so we're looking at probably around uh, March 1st to move in if, in fact, this ends up being uh, the property that that, uh, we are going to have. Show a couple more pictures, and then I want to take just two more minutes and show you this interesting video that we had. Tyler, maybe you could talk. There's the park. See all that parking back there? And there's parking way over to the right. You'll see it in this video. You could talk during the video because there's no sound during the video. I wanted some music during the video, but they wouldn't do it. So, Cody, will you come up and play in the background as I talk? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, this is uh, really exciting for Redemption Church at large. We've been praying, and as you guys know as a congregation, really thinking about the strategic nature of being in the Arcadia area. But if any of you know this area at all, Uh, Real estate costs at any level of real estate are absurd. And so there's many people that would say Arcadia is pricing churches out of the market because it's so expensive. So when this opportunity came about at the price that it came about, we thought we've got to move on this and begin to write a letter of intent knowing that that wasn't uh, finalized. What was more compelling than even the property is the history of Biltmore Bible Um, If you guys don't know this, Biltmore Bible was actually the church that was the seed that planted both Camelback Bible and Scottsdale Bible, and they were a plant of Bethany Bible downtown. So the lineage is incredible, and the story that God's created through Redemption Church of many churches coming together to become this one multi-congregational church. This is just one more church that God seems to be bringing into the midst of the redemption story. And so when we sat there and heard from their board, their passion for the gospel, ours, it gave us an opportunity to say, we think we're an incredible fit. We'll see if God does this. We're an incredible fit because the very legacy you 
we're established on is the very legacy God is enabling uh, redemption to sit in the wave and the current of that and hopefully take forward. So this is a, a huge moment, both in the strategic placement of this property, the unbelievable strategic and providential nature of the story that God is enabling us um, and giving us to steward along with that. And so for me, uh, from Redemption Church at large, to think that God may give us an opportunity to have this property, to steward this legacy, and to see you all as Redemption Arcadia, really the ones who inherit this history and carry it on in this, in this area, is nothing short of a huge calling upon you all as a congregation, upon us as Redemption Church at large, and extraordinarily exciting. I mean, it's really, really exciting for us. That said, as Frank said, any of you guys that have done any level of uh, a house purchase that might be, you have to do a lot of work in it. I was just having a conversation earlier about this with um, a family in this congregation that's going through a house turn right now, selling one and getting into another. You know there's all kinds of well, we'll seize to this. And so this isn't done that it's done that it's done, but we believe that uh, God's put this in front of us. Like Frank said, we're in escrow on it. Um, there's going to be a huge opportunity for you all as a congregation to step up to see uh, the gospel ministry carry forth from this property. But just so you hear it from Big R Redemption, Redemption Church at Large's perspective, we are extraordinarily excited about this opportunity. Um, you, you saw the aerial. The, 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 the front of the property on Camelback is narrower than all the parking. Did you see how when you went north, there was all that parking over there to the east? And then there was the, uh, the, the dirt lot that they have fenced off. That's also part of the property as well that will develop into more parking. Um, we are planning on the restoration. We're planning on keeping the sanctuary and possibly... Uh, the, the, the classroom building, everything else we're going we're gonna to tear down and, and, and rework and, um, and update, but we're keeping the sanctuary. The sanctuary is pretty cool. It's a little bit smaller than this sanctuary. Uh, Easter, would have had to, we would have had to have three services on Easter. We had 360 people in here in first service on last Sunday, uh, the 9 o'clock service. We'd probably be able to get about 300, 310 in their sanctuary once we redo it. Um, with the standing room that we had uh, last week in first service. Uh, what I'm really excited about is that the children will no longer be subterranean. They will be above ground. That's pretty cool, yeah. We're also going to have offices on, on the site, so we're not going to be fragmented and scattered. That's really exciting. We are going to take the pool out. Some of you, I know you saw that there was a swimming pool on the property. We're taking that out. However, the apartments around the property that, have lots of joke, pools, and so we can go pool hopping, right? That's not a joke. There really is a pool on the property. Yeah. We didn't see that. Yeah. It, Cody wanted to use it as a skate park. but um, So we are in escrow. And, and um, some of you are like, ah, capital campaign. Yes, there's going to be a capital campaign. There is no way we're going to be able to stay in Arcadia without putting some skin in the game and without sacrificing ourselves. But this is an amazing opportunity uh, to do something that there's no way we could do otherwise. So be, please continue to pray. Last thing I would say before we go into communion is you have questions. We know you're going to have questions. You've got questions right now. We're going to do our very best to answer those questions. Please ask them. But be patient with us as well. There are some questions that we can't ask, answer because it's in escrow right now. We're just restricted from answering. And there are other questions that we just don't know yet. We don't know how to answer that yet. However, if we know the answer, we'll be happy to uh, answer that for you. All right? You got anything else? 
You want to pray for us, and then uh, Cody will come up. Let's pray, and as we pray, I'm going to ask you to pray with me now, but also take this with you and pray uh, for the church, for our church here, uh, Redemption Arcadia, that God really would be working and making things clear. And our utmost desire that we want to put before the Lord is we want this property. We believe that it gives us an incredible opportunity. So let's pray to that end here and later. Father, we love you and thank you for the work that you've done here in this congregation. And we pray that the ministry you do amongst us all um, would not end on us. God, you never bless us, but for us to be a blessing and our desire for Redemption Arcadia is to be a blessing to the community in which you've sent us. Um, God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills and the earth belongs to you and all that is in it. This property belongs to you. Um, God, whether or not whoever holds the note of the property. It belongs to you, and we want to steward it well. Uh, We pray that you'd go before us in this, make us wise, um, allow this congregation to really step up and own um, this house of worship that you may provide for all of us. God, go before us. Give us wisdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Redemption Church is really excited to continue our partnership with Eastern Africa. A lot of you know that we've been partnering with Somali refugees here locally for the past five years and partner with the Ethiopian Church here locally as well. But the whole time we've been praying, God, if you would lead us, we'll work with those people here and then we'll love our neighbor globally as well. So about a year ago we went and this was our experience that we had there. And a lot of the things that I experienced, a lot of the things you heard on the video, I expected because I'd heard about it. A lot of people talk about it. The poverty that I experienced, I expected. Uh, the child prostitution, I'd heard about it and I expected it. Um, the child labor was another thing that we'd heard a lot about. I'll tell you what I didn't expect though. I'll tell you what overwhelmed me when I was there was the leadership, the faithfulness, the fearlessness of some of the churches, the pastors, and the leaders that I met that were doing incredible things for the kingdom of God incredible things for the good news of Jesus. So I started to ask myself, God, what can we give? Or if we do give, maybe it's not just us giving, but it's us receiving and learning just as much as we give from local leaders and local pastors. And I have one of those local leaders with me today. Yasu, if you want to come up here. I met a Yasu about three years ago. He's a good friend of mine, and he actually is founder of the organization that you just saw called Hope for Children. Uh, Yasu, would you just share a little bit of the vision of Hope for Children? Yes. Good morning. Uh, my name is Yasu. Uh, I am from Ethiopia. As Josh said, I'm the founder of Hope for Children uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, 17 years ago, uh, as a high school student, me and ten or, uh, nine of my friends uh, have been fellowshipping and studying the word of God together. And then as we were praying on overnight <coughs> in overnight prayer, we felt like we have to do something for the street children of Ethiopia, which are more than 100,000 street children on the, on the city of Addis Ababa. So we started to go out and share the word of uh, God together with the street children. <coughs> and then we shared the love of God with them. Uh, the response was great, but the problem is the suffering and the life that they live is very enormous and it's beyond comprehension. So we stop going out over there and sharing the love of God because it's very difficult to preach the gospel for them as you see them suffering on the street. They eat from the, the garbage pile of the Addis Ababa and they live on the street. They literally live on making living on the street. So we went back and then started praying, Lord, what should we do to help this? These people don't need only spiritual things, but also physical help. The Lord, we felt like the Lord challenged us to start with what we have. As, as, as everybody knows that we are from the poor family, let alone to support someone, we could not even able to support ourselves. The only difference between us and the street children when it comes to wealth, is we have a place to call home. At the end of the night, we go home. But sometimes, there are many occasions that we don't even eat when we go to the school. We're, we, we all, 10 of us, are from a very poor family. But it's not what we got uh, uh, financially or materially. It's what we believe. So at least we have extra shoes. So we came up with a policy that if anything you have extra, you have to bring it. You have to give it away. We start to give out our shoes. We, get, we start to give out T-shirts and shirts, even blanket. We steal blanket from home and uh, give out for uh, street kids. 
uh, finally, I mean, uh, we trusted the Lord, and then a lot of people start to volunteer to us, and then the material resource and the finance resource start to come in. And the first seven children, we could be able to house them. At least they live on the house, and then the, uh, they feed from the table. Uh, and then eventually, I mean, it's the story is too long. Fast forward 17 years, probably 20,000 street children, prostitutes, uh, children under child labor, uh, many, many others have been saved by the, the gospel, uh, uh, and also financially and economically, even academically rehabilitated. Thank you very much. You know, I, I've heard that vision maybe 10 times or the story, and it never ceases to amaze me. It's a, an incredible story. So in response to this, we want to take a global discipleship trip, and that language is very intentional because on this trip, later on in the year, it's not just going to be us giving, us doing for, but it's going to be us walking with and learning from. So if you want to grow as a global disciple of Jesus and learn from faithful men and faithful leaders that are doing incredible things for the gospel around the world, this would be an incredible opportunity. There's going to be a booth in the back where Ayasu can answer questions, I can answer questions about the trip, and everything's going to be posted online soon. So the city, the website, all the information about being a part of this trip, you can learn more. So at this time, I just want to pray for Yasu, hope for children, and everything God is doing in Ethiopia. Father, we praise you. You're good. You're faithful to us. And we just pray in the name of Jesus for Yasu, God, the other leaders of Hope for Children. God, I just pray that you would continue to do incredible things, and many kids would be saved through the good news of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.
The reading for today is Mark 2, 23 through 3, 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Amy. Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? All right, if you're new here today, my name is Frank. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'll be uh, with you for the next 45 or 50 minutes. If you're not new, you know that today we have a very big uh, and exciting announcement about the future of our uh, congregation, but um, you're going to have to listen to me preach first. (laughs) So that won't be for a little while, so hang in there, all right? Uh, A couple of uh, other quick announcements, so make sure you look in your bulletin. There are two classes that are starting this week uh, on Wednesday night right here uh, in the church building, so you want to take a look at those and decide which one you're going to come to, and we'll be providing dinner at both of those. And then uh, you should have gotten, um, or at least walked by, one of these little notices about the women's event on April 25th at Hope House Farms uh, downtown. Um, uh, Kit Danley is going to be the speaker there. I've known Kit for about 20 years, and it's going to be really an awesome event, so I would highly recommend uh, that you get involved in that. But we have been going through the book of Mark, with the exception of the last two Sundays when we did a Palm Sunday and an Easter Sunday deal. But we've been going through the book of Mark uh, since the beginning of February. We're going to take the book of Mark all the way through till Advent. That's when we're going to be finishing it up. And specifically, more recently in the book of Mark, we've been in what is known as the conflict text, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, through today's um, passage, which ends at verse 6 of chapter 3. Uh, we have what's been what scholars have called the conflict text in Mark, where uh, Jesus and the professional religious Jewish leadership are getting into these verbal uh, tussles, these verbal conflicts. Today is the culmination of that, and we know it's the culmination because uh, in verse 6, it says that n- now they're so angry with him that the Pharisees and the Herodians are getting ready to try to destroy him, the, uh, literally to try to kill him or have him executed. So just to give you a little bit of review, so far, Jesus has, in chapter 2, verse 7, uh, the perps, or what I call the per- I call them the perps, the professional religious people. So what the perps have, have decided is that, any, is that Jesus is one who curses their law, which they don't like, because in chapter 2, verse 7, he forgives the man who's paralyzed, he forgives him of his sins. Only God can do that. And so Jesus is making this claim to divinity, as he has throughout this entire gospel, something that really aggravates them. 
Then they don't like him in chapter 2, verse 16, because, and this is my vernacular, they see Jesus as a teammate of sinners. He's a friend of the sinners, and he, he parties with sinners and tax collectors. They don't like that. They don't think he should be hanging around with those detestable people, and so they're upset about that. And then, a couple verses later, he becomes a disrespecter of their religious traditions and customs because his disciples do not fast. And, and, and they say, why aren't, they, why aren't your disciples fasting? He said, why would they fast when the bridegroom is here? They're supposed to be eating and enjoying and celebrating while the bridegroom is here. But now, today, he becomes a Sabbath breaker, which is a particularly heinous crime in the eyes of the Pharisees. And I know some of us are like, really, the Sabbath? This is what kind of pushes them over the, over the edge? And yes, it is. And we're going to explain that and talk all about it Uh, today. Uh, Tim Keller says in his book about the book of Mark, he says, at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus stuns the religious leaders by claiming to be able to forgive sins. But now, by offending the Pharisaic Sabbath rules, and this is an important distinction, he's offending the Pharisees' rules about the Sabbath, not the Sabbath itself and what God intended. So that's an important distinction. We're going to spend a ton of time on that today. But he says, by offending the Pharisaic Sabbath rules, he makes an even more outrageous claim, so outrageous that the religious leaders don't even have a word for it. Jesus declares not that he has come to reform religion, but that he will end religion and replace it with himself. Three weeks ago in the book of Mark, we said it like this. Jesus' new perspective on religion is that it's about a person, him, and not a philosophy or a cause. We said Jesus turns the world upside down. And now we go even further and and further define that statement by saying Jesus turns our world upside down, but he turns the world right side up with who he is and what he is ushering in. Today we have two big ideas, but they are related. We have two big ideas because we have two big paragraphs to work our way through today. And they're related paragraphs because they're both about the Sabbath, but they have different ideas that I thought we could pull out and and study today. So idea one comes from the end of chapter two, and this is the idea. It's Jesus is Lord over mankind, therefore he is also Lord over our stuff. And when I use that highly academic and scholarly term stuff, what I'm talking about is not just our, our wealth and our possessions, but I'm talking about our institutions, our traditions, our customs, our time, our worldview, everything that is related to who we are, he is Lord over that. Anything related to us, he's Lord over that, as well as being Lord over us. He's Lord over our causes as well. Big idea number two comes in that first six, uh, six verses of chapter three, Jesus restores rather than observes, and we'll explain that too. Most of the time we spent on that first paragraph, let me reread it for you, <clears throat> and then we'll spend time just picking it apart and, and, and pulling out the really important principles that Jesus is getting at. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the, disciple, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what J- David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
So I want you to notice in this paragraph, as opposed to the next paragraph, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. In the next paragraph, you're going to see that he actually initiates the conflict. He's more aggressive even in the next paragraph. Uh, it's, it's, It's much higher stakes in the second paragraph, but this is still really intense here. Now, as mentioned, this Sabbath deal is a, it's a big thing. It's a big, big thing. In Genesis, God creates, you see Genesis 1, the creation narrative. God created everything and then he rested on the seventh day. And then in the law that he gave to Moses, it's the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. Now, it's important that he said keep the Sabbath holy. He doesn't say make sure you rest on the Sabbath, but he says keep the Sabbath holy. That's, that has a little bit different meaning. And this is important to understand that these two things actually go together. The Sabbath is the only thing remembered in the Ten Commandments that can be traced back now to the creation narratives. And so ancient Jewish religious writings claim that the Sabbath, more than any other thing, is a sign of partnering with God in bringing flourishing to creation. That's one of the reasons why the Sabbath is so important to the Jewish professional religious leaders. So it's almost as important as circumcision, which is the chief identifying factor of the Jewish people and their covenant with the Lord. So this is a big deal. And it's interesting. You think about the world's religions, and when you start to understand and think about this, you realize that places are revered in most, if not all, of the world religions. So Mecca is revered. The Ganges River is revered. The island of Japan is also revered. And the Jews revered the temple, so they had a place that they revered as well. But the Jews also revered time. They revered time. And one of the things the Sabbath is about is time. And I would suggest to you that this is quite advanced. And I want you to think about today. Just think about time now. Some of us do all the time. We think about time. What is the one commodity that we have that's completely limited, that we can never get more of, and that we have in the exact same proportion to everybody else. All of us have absolutely equal footing in this one commodity, and that would be time. We get 168 hours per week. We don't get more. I wish I could get more. Haven't you ever said, if I just had 10 more hours in the week, what, how much of an advantage would I have over everybody else if I had 10 more hours? I would probably use it to sleep, but nevertheless, it would be an advantage over everybody else. If you, if you lose money, you can always go out and make more money. And there's really no limit on how much money you you can make. If you want more information, it's unlimited how much information you can get. If if you want more relationships and more friends on Facebook, you can go out and get as many as you want, but every one of us gets exactly 168 hours per week. And so it's important to God how we steward that time. We're His stewards of His resources. So what are the Pharisaic beliefs and teachings on the Sabbath? Well, this is important to understand as well because what God intends for the Sabbath, what He intends for His teachings, what He intends for His law, and what humans often do to His teachings and to His law, whether it's out of pride or out of a desire to try to control or out of a desire to gain more power, what we do to God's teachings and God's law is what's at issue here for Jesus, what the Pharisees have done to it. He's not... He's not pushing back against the Sabbath itself. The Sabbath is a good thing. And he's not pushing back against what God has intended for the Sabbath, but he's pushing back against what the religious leaders over the years have encumbered the Sabbath with. The religious leaders had come up with all sorts of other rules that people were supposed to follow in relation to the Sabbath. 
And these rules were not necessarily a bad thing, but the problem was is that over the years, the rules became something to be honored and revered above the Sabbath itself, above God himself, and above other people themselves. So the, the rules have become the ultimate thing. The secondary thing has become the primary thing, and that's a problem. So here, for instance, are some of the rules. A Pharisee said you could save a life on the Sabbath, but you could not cure or heal in a non-life-threatening situation on the Sabbath. You had to wait till Monday. Or, or, I'm sorry, until Sunday. Uh, You could stop further damage or deterioration to your house or to your business or to your livestock on the Sabbath. If something was happening, you could stop it from happening further, but you couldn't begin to reverse the process. You couldn't start to cure it. You couldn't start to heal it. You couldn't start to make it well. You couldn't solve a problem on the Sabbath. You couldn't make anything better on the Sabbath. You just had to stop the progression of the destruction. That's it. And the Pharisees also made a law that if you planned ahead, as you were supposed to, you would always have something to eat on the Sabbath, thus the day of preparation for the Sabbath. You would always have something to eat on the Sabbath, therefore you would never have to do any work at all related to getting food. You wouldn't have to do any food preparation. You wouldn't have to pick grain, for instance. So picking grain on the Sabbath was verboten. Unless you read Deuteronomy chapter 23, which seems to say that it's okay. But again, the Pharisees had decided that their understanding was probably a little bit better. So this is important to understand. But then it goes even further. Some Pharisees actually believed and taught that humans were created for the Sabbath. That the Sabbath took precedence over humans. That we were enslaved to the Sabbath. That we were to serve the Sabbath. And I would argue that's the, that's the influence of the other ancient creation uh, religious texts on the Pharisees. We, we've talked about this before. The Bible is the only creation text where, where human beings are made as beneficiaries of God's resources. That we are to steward His resources. That we are to cultivate and to flourish because of what God has blessed us with and given us. But in the other ancient creation texts, Uh, the human beings are made to just be slaves to the gods. And that's essentially it. And I think that influence is creeping in here. But God's understanding of his commandments are way different than what the Pharisees thought about the commandments and about the Sabbath. God gave the commandments for human beings to give them life, to help them to flourish, to help them to have an understanding of what reality is and what's important and what isn't. Here's how one person, he says it, God gave the commandments to show human beings how to bring glory to the correct things in life. That word glory in the Bible that we translate as glory literally means weight or heaviness or importance. In other words, the commandments that God gave us help us to understand what's really important in life and what we're supposed to pay attention to. C.S. Lewis, I've already referred to this without using his name, but C.S. Lewis talks about how there are primary things and there are secondary things. And that human beings' specialty, especially when God isn't there to help guide us and shape us and conform us, human beings' specialty is to start to focus on the secondary things, hoping that those things will bring us fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction, that those things will bring us closer to God, and all they do is frustrate us and disappoint us because we've gotten our eye off the ball of the primary things. God comes along and says, these are the primary things that you're supposed to be focusing on. You need to focus on these in order to have the fulfillment and the contentment that you're looking for. And we don't do that. And one of the examples I would use right now, and it's not the only example. We do this with work. We do this with education. We do this with money. We do it with relationships. We do it with comfort and convenience. We do it with pride. 
But also, in our culture today, we're doing this a lot with sex and sexual identity. We've become a culture that believes that ultimate fulfillment comes through sex and who we identify with in our sexual identity. And all we're finding in that is frustration. Do you know anybody addicted to pornography who's really happy with their life right now? The answer would be no. Frustration and enslavement. And we could go on and on and on and on and talk about that, and yet the culture says, no, sex is everything, and there should be no hold bars, and you should figure out your identity in your sex and, and who you're affectionate with and all of this. And this is what's important. And it's just frustrating the living snot out of us because we're taken off of our game. So the law, God's law, and therefore the value of the Sabbath was actually a gift to us, not something to enslave us. Jesus said this. He said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. If the law was bad, why would Jesus come to fulfill it? If the law was bad, he would come to destroy it. So the law is actually something that is very good. One author, James Edwards, says it this way. Both the legalist rule monger and the one who is free in Christ will desire to keep the Sabbath, but one will do it out of grinding, grudging duty, thus making it a burden, and the other out of delight because they know that the Sabbath is a gift. The Pharisees were inflicting this on people, enslaving people with it, and Jesus says, you need to be liberated by the Sabbath. And so they're walking through and they're plucking grain. The scholarly assumption is that they're eating corn and the Pharisees had a problem with this. And Jesus answers not with an excuse but with a precedent. And it was a precedent that then lays his groundwork for the rest of his teaching on the Sabbath. And, and there's irony, by the way, there's irony throughout both of these paragraphs. But the first irony is this. When he looks at the very people who found their complete identity in life in the fact that they read and knew the Hebrew Scriptures backwards and forwards, and he says to them, have you never read? That's an insult to them. And there's irony there. And he's referencing this well-known story from 1 Samuel chapter 21 when David and his band were on the run from Saul and, and, and they're hungry and they're desperate and they go and they eat the sacred altar bread that they're really not supposed to eat. And Jesus mentions Abiathar, which troubles some Bible neatniks because Ahimelech was actually the priest at Nob where David got the bread from. But common for their day... A teacher or a rabbi references the one who was the high priest under David's eventual and ultimate reign, and that was Abiathar. And Jesus' point in referencing this particular story is that he wants to remind the Pharisees that we were created as God's beneficiaries, not God's slaves. And so when we begin to serve God's laws and rules above God himself and above what God intends, we're actually mocking God in doing so. And we're, in a sense, making a mockery of the laws that God has given us as well. And we become slaves to these laws rather than experiencing God's blessings in them. Jesus is saying you've become a slave to that which was intended to set you free. Now think about that. How often do we do that? We, we get a gift, we get a blessing, and then somehow we become enslaved to it. We, we start to maneuver it and, and twist it and, and the next thing you know, we're encumbered by it. The Sabbath was given as a gift to human beings. A gift! Again, we are God's beneficiaries. We're His stewards. We are His stewards under His lordship. Nevertheless, we are given all these resources so that we can be um, partakers of this creation. 
How often we take gifts and encumber ourselves with them rather than enjoying them and allowing them to restore and rejuvenate us. Jesus speaks into this, we see at the end of this text, because He's Lord. He's God. Once again, He's using language that lets the Pharisees know, I'm, just, I'm not just a rabbi and a good teacher, I am God. And, and my teaching uh, comes, flows from the fact that I am God. And as Lord, He's not just Lord over us, but He's also Lord over everything related to us. Our traditions, our causes, our institutions, our rest, everything, our wealth. Jesus claims us, and he claims everything about us as well. And, and, and he, again, we, we get on this track with him becoming, he's divine. He's telling them that he is actually God. You know, every prophet, every sage, every wise man, every religious leader, every priest prior to Jesus, when, when they would teach about God and they would teach about the commandments of God, that they would say, thus saith the Lord. They would preface it that way. I, I come in on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or whatever, and I say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God's word says. And Jesus comes and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I wrote those scriptures. I'm the creator of everything. I am God. And the reason I I, I lean into this and I, and I bring this up so often is because it's so often brought up to me and I'm going to bring it up again. So often, you and I, I, I ran into somebody on Friday and we had this conversation for an hour and 40 minutes. So often we run into people who say that they really appreciate Jesus' teachings, they love His teachings, they try to follow His teachings, but there's no way they can accept that Jesus is God. He's not God. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think these are people who have not, who, they just haven't taken the one or two minutes that it would take for them to see how illogical this statement is. Jesus teaches what he teaches because he's God. He has no ability to teach what he teaches if he's not God. His teaching would be different if he wasn't God. So if you reject him as God, you can't possibly, on the other and accept, embrace, and appreciate his teaching because that's a complete contradiction. And I believe, and, and I've seen people have written about this too, I believe that the reason people say this is because they want all the benefits of his teaching, you know, when it makes sense to, to them and when it's convenient for them and, and when, it, when they agree with it and when it makes their life better, but we certainly don't want to agree with it and, and come under it when we don't agree with it and it's inconvenient, and we certainly don't want to end up giving our entire lives to him. He says he's Lord, we have to give everything to him. We don't want to do that either. In other words, we want to be able to have Jesus and reject him too when we need to. We want it both ways. Saying that Jesus is a good teacher but not God is what we would call an attempt at a third way that doesn't exist. You read the New Testament, you read what Jesus teaches, and you know that there are two decisions. You're either all in or you're all out. And there is no third way. And those who claim God, Jesus is a good teacher and a cool guy but not God, they're trying for this third way compromise. They're trying for a have your cake and eat it too existence, which Jesus says that does not exist. That's not reality. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And the only way he's Lord of the Sabbath is if he's Lord over everything. And he is. So Jesus is misunderstood. He's misunderstood then. He's misunderstood today. The Sabbath is also misunderstood then as well as today. And those misunderstandings are connected. And now we're going to go even deeper. We're just going to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper on this. 
Part of the misunderstanding here can come from a not-so-close reading of what Jesus says. Jesus is Lord. We have established that. But he doesn't say, I am Lord over the Sabbath. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And you're going, well, that's a really subtle difference, but it's an important difference. You know what he's saying? He's actually saying, I am the Sabbath. I'm the Sabbath. You know all that rest you're looking for? Anybody in here a little tired? Don't we get tired? Aren't we fatigued? Aren't we stressed? Don't we have angst? Don't we worry? Don't we wish we could just recuperate forever? <laughs> Don't we feel that? I mean, we're just, we're t- you know, all the rest, we're really not going to get it in a day off. I'm not saying a day off is bad, but how many times have you gotten to the end of a day off and you're more tired than you were at the beginning of the day off? We're not going to get it in a day off. We're not going to get it in a vacation. We're not going to get it in retirement. Not the ultimate rest and shalom, peace that we're looking for. Jesus is that ultimate rest, that ultimate shalom. The idea of shalom, peace, or the, 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 the fact that we know that things are broken and we want them to be the way they're supposed to be, that's shalom. We'd like to live in an environment where things are the way they're supposed to be. Jesus is that not in just a day off. Now, I know some of you are going, wait a minute, I read the Bible. It said that on the seventh day, God rested. Well, again, what does that really mean, that God rested? Was God exhausted? I mean, he's God. I'm not sure about that. Maybe we need to look a little bit deeper. If God can get exhausted, I'm a little worried, okay? Right? Whoops, missed that. (laughs) Okay? What is this really about? Now, you and I do get tired. That's true. So we need time for rejuvenation. I heartily endorse that. But from God's perspective, the Sabbath goes deeper than that. It's about contentment. How many of us are content? The Sabbath is about resting and being content. It's the ability to take time to look at what we've done and actually be satisfied with it. God says, stop working, rest, yes, but then also rejoice in what you and God have accomplished together. Stop working and realize that you can always want to be somewhere else. You can always desire to be with someone else. You can always have cravings and longings for more junk in your life, and you can always sit around and go, I wish I were a different person. You can always do that. God says, no, instead, come to Jesus Sabbath in Jesus, find your rest in your shalom in Jesus, be content and look with satisfaction on what God has blessed you with. Be satisfied and content with who you are, what you have, who you're with, and where you are. It's a blessing from God. He's given this to us. So Jesus says, I am Lord. I am Lord of your rest. I'm Lord of your shalom. I'm Lord of your contentment. And I am Lord of your freedom. But then he moves on, and we see this next confrontation. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Literally, to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him, how to kill him. So here, Jesus, the big idea is that Jesus is about restoration rather than observation. And this is yet another little mini-narrative about the, the Sabbath. And this one is even more hot-blooded. It's, it's, the stakes are higher. They're in the, the synagogue now. And Jesus initiates this confrontation. And that word accused, they were looking to accuse him. That's a technical uh, legal Greek word that, that literally means they were to mount a, an airtight legal case that would result in his execution. And there's more irony here. There's a lot of irony in this paragraph. This healing that Jesus did would not have violated the biblical Sabbath, but again would have violated and did violate the Pharisees' rules of Sabbath observance. They claimed that you could only uh, do something like this if it would save a life. This man's life wasn't threatened. He had a chronic condition, not a critical condition. He simply wanted restoration of something that he once had before. And Jesus is the ultimate and the great restorer. You understand that when he comes again, that's what he's going to do. He's going to restore the created order. He's going to restore paradise. He's going to restore the brokenness of the world into what was originally intended. That's what he's going to accomplish when he comes again. Paradise, the created order, and there's going to be unity among the nations, the tribes, the people, and unity with creation. And Jesus really takes issue with the heart of the Pharisees in this passage. And as a result, it's one of the few times when Mark makes reference to Jesus being angry in this gospel. And again, for some of us, we struggle with the idea of Jesus being angry. The picture we have of Jesus is this cupcake and cu- cupcakes and muffins, feathered hair guy who's just always oh, so sweet. But we like that Jesus because that's a straw Jesus and we can control him and shred him whenever we need to. Jesus had gravitas, if you want to use that contemporary term. Jesus had weight. Jesus, Jesus was willing to stand up publicly for what was right. This was absolutely huge. And, and, and we know this is true. He was so angry with the hearts of these guys. He's saying, your hard heart is worse than not following the rules. And he uses these words that are used nowhere else in the Gospel of Mark. That word translated anger, the word translated grieved, the word translated hardness of heart, they're used nowhere else. And the purpose of that is to show that Jesus takes a position. He's saying, my faith, your faith, is not a private endeavor. But it's a public risk, and so you and I are called to do the same thing. We step out in faith publicly, and we take that risk. You think, okay, there's a challenge, and now I'm going to give you one more challenge. You and I as regular churchgoers, I'm assuming most of us here are regular churchgoers, we hear this, and some of us hear this, and we think inside. We don't necessarily say it outside, but we think inside, yes. Yes, those people not in church honoring God, Jesus judges their heart on. What about us? You know, some of the hardest hearts you can find are actually in the church. You understand that? Hard hearts can hide in the church. The point of God's word, yes, is to convict non-believers. You bet. But we need to understand that God's word also convicts those of us who should know better. It's great that you and I think of people outside of the church who need to hear the gospel and need salvation. Let's go get them. We are outward focused. I'm all for that. But we need to admit that we need to hear this too. We need to be challenged. 
We're the ones in the process of being transformed, conformed to the image of His Son. The Gospel is as much for those of us who have salvation as it is for those who do not have salvation. How's your heart? How's your heart? And of course, Jesus' compassion for the man gets him into the ultimate trouble. If you don't know the history, the idea that the Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting together, there's great irony there, I'm telling you. The Herodians were actually Jews who had adopted the Greco-Roman style of life and morality. They had abandoned their Jewishness, if you want to say it that way. In other words, they were sellouts. The Pharisees saw them as political prostitutes, as religiously corrupt and dirty. The Pharisees and the Herodians got along the way Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow get along, okay? But Jesus, it's so fascinating how Jesus can come along and he can take people who have massive differences. They have religious differences. They have political differences. They have personal differences. They have worldview differences. They're different in every way, shape, and form, and Jesus can unite them against him. Doesn't that say something about Jesus? Yeah, he's a jerk. No, you're missing the point. He's the one. He's the one. Strange bedfellows always result when people are riled at Jesus. And we close with this. The key to this paragraph is the question that Jesus asks in the middle of the paragraph. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? And on the surface, uh, this looks like Jesus is just restating a question. And it is parallelism, but these are two completely different questions in actuality. Two completely different questions about two completely different topics only related by the Sabbath. That first part, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to do evil? Jesus is pressing against the legalist interpretation of the law to say to the Pharisees, he's saying, really? Really? The good God who created paradise and created humans as beneficiaries of his creation, you would reject this man with this withered hand uh, for the sake of your Sabbath interpretation? Really? You would do that? It's a cutting, insulting question to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees knew it, and the Pharisees knew that Jesus was getting aggressive and raising the stakes. He's saying to them, you would rather observe a rule than restore a man. And Jesus is about restoration. But then that second part of the question penetrates even further. He says, on the Sabbath, should we save a life or are we going to kill? Jesus takes that first question. It's about the Sabbath rules and, and the man with the withered hand. This second question is about the Sabbath rules and Jesus himself. Jesus is saying to them with this little question at the end, he says, I know your heart. You want me dead. And you're willing to kill me to do it. And, you're, and here's what's funny. He said, you're willing to violate the sixth commandment and the ninth commandment, the commandment against murder and the commandment against false witness. You're willing to violate the sixth and the nine in order to, to, to protect your version of the fourth commandment. You're willing to trade the six and the nine for the four, and it's not even the true four, it's your version of the four. He says, that's evil. You guys are evil. You could save a life here. You could save my life. But you'll choose, irony of ironies, on the Sabbath to plot to break the sixth and the ninth commandments. You choose evil, he says. I'm the one who's choosing good. There are parallel questions, yes. They both deal with the hearts of the Pharisees, but they deal with completely different topics. One talks about doing good on the Sabbath, and the other one is talking about murdering God. And clearly, Jesus is way about way more about restoration than observation. 
So he's angry because the religious leaders have taken something that's meant for restoration and rejuvenation and contentment and shalom and recreation and renewal and they've distorted it with their rules. The Pharisees' hearts are actually more shriveled than this man's hand. Again, how's your heart? How's my heart? This again comes down to something that we ask and proclaim every single Sunday. Are you here to receive the gospel or are you here to live under a religion? The religious person says, you know what? If I dutifully observe and obey, then I might be worthy enough to be accepted by God. But the gospel says this, I am already fully accepted, fully redeemed. I'm going to be restored by Jesus. That's a guarantee. That's his promise. And so now I have a love and a power to obey. I can joyfully and gratefully Follow Jesus, obey Jesus, and love Jesus. That's a big difference. Choose the gospel. Let me pray, and as I do, I'm going to ask Tyler to come up. And Cody and the musicians can start to get ready for our, uh, our song and communion. Holy God, we thank you that you are the Sabbath. That you've given us a Sabbath as an important gift, but that you are also ultimately our Sabbath, where we find rest, where we find rejuvenation, where we find shalom. Help us to know that that is true and that the gospel is what redeems and saves. God, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds and fill us with your spirit and that truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tyler, come on out. Uh, This is Tyler Johnson. If you don't know, he's the lead pastor over all of Redemption. Redemption is one church with nine congregations. We're the Arcadia congregation. We're here to make a little announcement. Um, I came to Redemption Arcadia a little over three years ago. It was, it was about two years old when I, when I came. Uh, Justin Anderson had gotten uh, this church started and, and eventually became a part of Redemption. And one of the first things that, that I was told in, in the process of coming here was we're going to have to figure out a permanent venue for the Arcadia congregation at some point. We've been here uh, five and a half years at Memorial Presbyterian. We've been renting from them. Um, it's been great, and we, we like it and, and, and don't mind going forward with it, but there are some limitations. We, we're, we're restricted to this building, and, and the parking is, is, is a struggle sometimes, and we'd like to have access. We don't have offices on the, on, on the campus, and it's a small campus. It's about 1.35 acres, and so the, the, Tyler said, and other people say, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to kind of start looking around for a different place that maybe we could actually own and, and put down some roots. And so we started looking, and it was a, it's, it's been a frustrating look, hasn't it? It's been, I mean, a lot of time is spent on this. Uh, about a year ago, we mentioned that we even started looking outside of the Arcadia area. We were looking at places around uh, Shea in the 51 and up on Cactus Road north of Squaw Peak and uh, looking all over the place, really, for, for some place where we could set down some roots. And then about six months ago, during one of our pastoral meetings, Co- Cody just said, you know, God's really laying this on my heart to say. He said, uh, you know, God gave us this incredible foothood, foothold in the Arcadia area uh, five years ago, uh, and Justin took advantage of that. And, and so I think that until God absolutely shuts us down in Arcadia, we shouldn't look outside of Arcadia. And the rest of us looked around and said, Oh, you, you mean faith and trust in God? Well, that sounds like a good idea. And so we decided that we would just start looking in the Arcadia area, and nothing really happened after that until uh, an interesting little, um, I wouldn't call it an offhanded conversation, but a, fr- a good friend of mine walked by on Sunday morning, and he said, 
he didn't say these words, but essentially this is what he said. I know something that you don't know, and I want to help you connect with that knowledge. And I said, really, that's very interesting. Send me an email. So he connected me with some other people, and those people connected me with yet another person. And the next thing you know, we're having meetings about a property in the Arcadia area. And we've had several meetings, and Tyler was at a, a couple of those meetings. And then, and then we presented them with a letter of intent to buy their property. And then on Monday, March 30th, they accepted our letter of intent and we signed a purchase agreement to buy the property. There's Neil Pitchell. He's our executive pastor for Redemption. I took that picture. Tyler was sitting on my left there. Tom Schrader, founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church, our Gilbert congregation, was sitting on my right. I took that picture to just kind of keep for memory's sake. We signed uh, um, the purchase agreement on this property. On Monday, the Monday after Easter, this last Monday, we opened escrow on it. The deal's not done, but we opened escrow on it, and the property is at 3330 East Camelback Road, so right around the um, uh, intersection of 32nd Street and Camelback. There it is, outlined with the yellow, so you can see that there's a lot of parking. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. yeah it's, this is, it's okay. Be excited. Be excited, yeah. For now, anyway. <laughs> so Camelback is there down at the bottom, okay? A couple of other uh, pictures that we can, that we can show you. <clears throat> what is there right now is, is uh, Biltmore Bible Church and Christian Center. Uh, they've been there since about 1958. They have a long and wonderful legacy. Um, interesting, um, they, they had offers from developers on this property. They realized they needed to sell the property. It was time to sell. They had offers on the property from developers uh, for way more than we were able to pay. But they had decided philosophically and theologically that they wanted the legacy of the gospel to continue on that property. And so they privately began to entertain um, conversations and offers from churches. We weren't the only church that was pursuing this property. Um, but ultimately, um, after a long time of prayer and, and working through some things, they decided that we would be the ones that would have this property. Uh, the purchase of the property is for about, this was never about money for Biltmore Bible Church. Understand that. Uh, we purchased it, uh, we will purchase it, if it gets out of escrow, for about 30% of what market value is. Now, we're going to have to spend some money restoring the property. That's going uh, to add some expense to it, but ultimately, we're, this is a gift, ultimately, uh, from Biltmore uh, Bible Church. It's, it's amazing. Again, like I said, a lot of property. Uh, we'll show you a little video here. That's all the parking. We're so excited about the parking. Um, we have a drone video. I'll let Tyler talk during the drone video because we have no music to the background of the drone video. About two minutes here. So. Frank was actually tempted to just buy a parking lot. <laughs> that's, how, that's how much he wanted parking. Um, this is an incredible story. It really is. We've been praying as Redemption Church for quite some time um, for this congregation, our congregation in Arcadia, you all, in regards to property. And many people in reference to Arcadia will say that Arcadia is beginning to price many people, including many of you all, out of Arcadia because you can't afford a home. Well, a lot of people are saying that about churches, that it's getting to a point where you're just entirely being priced out of this Area And just like you all in your homes, we as the leadership of Redemption Church have to think through finances as much as anybody else would. And many of the options we looked at were either no options at all or truthfully we were being 
priced out of this. And so Biltmore Bible um, coming on the scene, we looked at and went, we have got to press into this further. And the story of this is amazing in reference to the story of Redemption Church. If you all don't know, the story of Redemption Church and how it's come about is many churches at this point, which we never knew was going to be a part of our story, followed in this line of when Praxis Church and East Valley Bible Church came together to make Redemption Church, it seems like now, some four years later, looking back, that one of the things God's doing is bringing many churches into the stream of this new church he's formed called Redemption Church as a multi-congregational church. And that's the opportunity is we heard the legacy of Biltmore Bible, which if you don't know, was planted out of Bethany Bible in Central Phoenix and was the seed that also planted Camelback Bible. So out of Biltmore Bible came the core groups to Camelback Bible and Scottsdale Bible Church. And so for us to have an opportunity to say we very much feel like we're in that same current of churches that came out of those, um, either directly or indirectly, to think that your greatest passion is the carrying on of this gospel legacy, we feel like that is what God's done with us. And if he so has it that we begin to take on this property, we feel the responsibility to steward that legacy. And you all now, if God has this come about to completion, have the opportunity to carry on a legacy that's been there since 1958 and to continue in and throughout the Arcadia area and these neighborhoods. And we are amazed by that and also feel an incredible responsibility, which we should all feel together, not just us sitting on the stage. We should all feel together for someone uh, to give us this property at 30% of the value. uh, We want to understand their graciousness in that, their generosity in that, their gospel vision in that, and feel the responsibility to steward it, but then to understand ultimately this is all the Lord's anyway. So the Bible's very clear that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Everything that exists on earth is God's and he gives us things, these things to steward. So this is a blessing to us, but blessings are never meant to end upon us. We're to use this to be a blessing to this Uh, part of Phoenix. So we are thrilled and extraordinarily excited about this opportunity. And yet we got to live in the reality that it's escrow and nothing's done till it's done. And this is going to take the full ownership of this congregation, which means you and your families or you as individuals, your families and us as an entire church to see this come to fruition. Yeah, as Tyler said, we uh, opened escrow this last Monday. Escrow will be about 90 days. Escrow is the study of the feasibility of, of, of the uh, transaction, whether or not we're really going to be able to handle it, whether or not there are other issues with the property that we don't know about. Already we've had an architect and a general contractor walk the property and found some things that we couldn't really see uh, initially, which is going to add a little bit of a, a cost to the restoration that we weren't really expecting. So already there's some issues that we're going to have to work through. Nevertheless, we are hoping and praying that around the first week of July we'll be uh, closing escrow. It will be ours. We'll have the keys. Uh, the restoration uh, of the property will take about six to eight months, and so maybe March 1st uh, we're looking at possibly moving in there. Um, you saw the buildings there. We're, we're going to keep the sanctuary and restore that. It's a really cool old sanctuary that we know that you guys will love. It's, the ceilings are a little bit lower than this, but 
and the building itself is a little bit smaller. Uh, we could pack maybe 310 people in there on a Sunday. Uh, if we had to, like last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we had 360 in here, and we were absolutely at capacity. So we recognize that we may need to go to three services, and we're talking about that, but not as seriously until after July. But we, we recognize that we may need to be doing uh, stuff like that. Uh, we're going to keep uh, classrooms, offices, um, and, and uh, by the way, the children will no longer be subterranean. They're going to be above ground, which is really exciting. And there's more room for them. We won't have offices off the property right now. We're very fragmented with offices at 36 and Indian School. Everything will be self-contained right there on that property across from Tommaso's, which is not a bad deal either, the Italian, iconic Italian place. So, um, but just remember, we're, we're in escrow. We're going to pay a little bit up front. Then we're going to have to pay a, a little bit more than the actual cost of the property to restore the property. There will be a capital campaign. Yes, there will. So we're giving you three months to already start thinking about that. And, and just remember, there is no way that we are ever going to be able to stay in Arcadia without some cost, without some sacrifice, and without you and I putting some skin into this game. But we're going to wait until after escrow to uh, launch that, make sure we have the property. Then we'll have time to be able to ramp up the uh, capital campaign and then hopefully move in if you would continue to pray that we could move in by March 1st, 2016. Last thing I want to mention before Tyler prays and Cody comes out, uh, you have questions, obviously. There are a million questions about this. And I just would ask that you'd be patient with us. We want you to ask the questions. Please email me, text me, ask me all the questions you want. Just know that there are some questions that I cannot answer because it's in escrow that I can ask, answer once it comes out of escrow. And then there are other questions that you'll ask that I'll just simply go, I don't know. And then there are other questions that you'll ask and I'll go, I don't know, but that's a really good question. I should find that out. And then the questions that I can answer, I will certainly answer as quickly as possible. Okay? God is good, eh? It's awesome. Did you pray? <clears throat> Let's, let's pray, um, and as I pray this prayer, pray with me, but also take these prayers with you and pray them individually, pray them as families, pray them with your roommates, um, specifically with what the Lord might be doing with this property, but pray, we are praying that God would allow us to, to have this property, so let's pray. Father, we love you, and we acknowledge right now that you are the owner and the ruler of all things. God, you are gracious to us, and for that, we express our thanksgiving, and we say, do not ever let these things fall upon us and let us not receive the gifts that you give us and think that they are ours, but that you have given them to us that we might extend that generosity and blessing to others. And that's what we want to do with this property. God, we ask that you'd give it to us, that you would provide the resources for us to rehab and refurnish uh, this property, that we could be in a faithful witness to the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and his life and what it's meant to us and what it means to the world. God, thank you. We love you. God, make us a people of generosity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.